I'm John Moe. This week on Wits, Neil Gaiman. He's a beloved best-selling author, and we make him pretend that he's a bebop jazz musician trying to save people from a homicidal cat. Don't be afraid, angel bunnies. Scoot boot diddly noot. Neil reveals his deepest fears. I uh, just, the, you know, the usual bad things happening to my kids, bad things happening to my wife, my eyeballs turning to giant liquid balls and dripping down my cheeks. Same as everybody else. And tells an unnerving story about his dog. And it was just a very odd moment. We were sitting together and he said, woof. Wait, don't dogs normally say woof? No, dogs go woof. Um, they make noises like that. They never go woof. Plus music from My Brightest Diamond. Wits coming right up. From APM, American Public Media, this is Wits. I'm John Moe. This week, author Neil Gaiman and music from My Brightest Diamond. Neil Gaiman is the author of books like American Gods, Coraline, and The Ocean at the End of the Lane, as well as the Sandman graphic novel series, and also Trigger Warning, a new book of, as he describes it, short fictions and disturbances. Let's go to the stage at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners on radio and cast upon pods, we bring interesting people on the show, interesting for the work that we are familiar with from them, but perhaps yet more interesting for the shocking facts that our crack wits research staff has uncovered. Neil Gaiman, I will present you with a shocking fact about yourself, after which I would like you to provide some context and or explanation. Shocking fact one. At the age of 15, you launched a magazine called Metro. Well, it's, it's true-ish. Um, <laughs> I, what I actually really wanted to do was meet people who I thought were interesting, and I knew that they wouldn't just talk to me. So I phoned up Michael Moorcock's agent, and he was an English writer, and I said, I'd like to interview Mike Moorcock. And he said, uh, who are you with? And I was 15, so I said, Metro magazine, because it sounded like a real magazine. <laughs> um, and then I told my friends that, hey, I, my friend Steve, my friend Dave, uh, by the way, guys, I, I've got an interview with, with Moorcock, and we're a magazine called Metro. And Steve, Steve Gett, who was much more on the ball than I was, promptly went out, sold advertising for the magazine. Um, and although we didn't actually understand such concepts as, as typesetting, he had astoundingly beautiful and legible handwriting. So he carefully handwrote. <laughs> The first wow. three issues of the magazine, and it came out as, as our zine, uh, Metro. So, yes, that, that's true. Metro magazine. Truish, yes. Shocking fact, too, Neil Gaiman, you had a talking cat. Well, he didn't say much. Um, his, his, <laughs> this, this was, I've, I've had many, many cats in my lifetime, but this was Fred the Unlucky Black Cat. And Fred actually used to talk. He only said one thing, which was hello. But it was very, very off-putting. You'd be sort of sitting there, and a voice, you know, look up, and you go, hello. <laughs> and you go, you're a cat. <laughs> it, was, it was very peculiar. My late, beautiful, wonderful white German shepherd, Cabell, who actually came here the last time I did a wit. I remember. Um, 
he only ever sort of spoke once in all the time I was with him. And it was just a very odd moment. We were sitting together and he said, woof. Wait, don't dogs normally say woof? No, dogs go woof. Um, they make noises like that. They never go woof. And, and he said woof. And I just looked at him and he looked really embarrassed. Like, oh God. Shocking fact, Neil Gaiman. You were once in a punk rock band called the X-Execs, offered a record deal and turned it down. This is all true. Um, my fellow members of the X-Execs, we were 15, again, 15 going on 16. Um, they've all gone on to become things like uh, a meteorite man on television, the TV show, Meteorite Men, that's Jeff Notkin, and a TV producer, Jeff uh, Graham Smith. Hold on, what's a meteorite man? It's, it's a man who goes out and finds meteorites. Oh, okay. They come down from the sky, he finds he them. He locates them. And then you watch him getting really, really grumpy. And basically, it's, just, it's a show about Jeff getting grumpy, failing to find meteorites. <laughs> and, and then at the end of the show, he finds a fantastic meteorite, and it's sort of... And he's happy. He's happy for a while. Yeah. yeah. And then he'll, next show, he's going to get grumpy again. It's great. Um, what did you do in this band, the XXX? I was the one who wasn't grumpy. I was, no, what, what did I do? I was singing. I was um, occasionally bass playing. Mostly, I was the one waiting for the others to notice that I had very little talent and to throw me out. Um, but I was, I was sort of front man. Um, we did actually get offered a record contract in the punk days. And I went and found an entertainment lawyer. And he read it for me. I said, what the, so should we sign this? He said, well, put it this way. The way they have structured the deal, your record company are also your publisher. They're also your management company. They're also pretty much everything else along the way. And they keep cutting themselves a share and giving you what's left over. And then in their next incarnation, they cut themselves a share. He said, so if you have a number one single, you would be lucky to clear 100 pounds each. <laughs> and it was like this wonderful moment of revelation. I thought, I do not want to be part of an industry that screws 16-year-old kids like this. <laughs> and went and let the rest of the band know that, no, we weren't signing the record contract. <laughs> you were the XXXX, by the way. We were. Well, Neil Gaiman, thank you for describing the shocking facts. She has made music with the Decemberists, Sufjan Stevens, David Byrne, many others. She has also released four critically acclaimed albums on her own, the most recent being This Is My Hand. Please welcome Shara Warden, also known as My Brightest Diamond. Left one dead, the 
Warden, welcome to Wits. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. That was outstanding. Thank you so much. Um, I hear a lot of opera in your music. Can you tell me about your background in opera? I studied classical voice in school. Was that the music played in your house when you were a girl? My parents listened to classical music, but not really opera. Yeah. No, they, they, my father was a choral conductor and a kind of a music leader in church. And my mother was a pianist, a classical pianist. But, you know, my dad would bring home Michael Jackson records, too. So he so had wide ears. it wasn't straight up gospel. Ears. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Well, Michael Jackson, that's gospel to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious about your process, then, of writing a song, because your songs sound so different from a lot, of, a lot of the other stuff that's out there. How does a song 
begin for you? Is it a, a topic? Is it a, a hook? Is it a riff? Like, what's the, what's the seed? My past has been mostly a picture of um, some image, and then the whole song unfolds very quickly. But for this one, I, I really wanted to imagine what the concert experience as this tribe. I became obsessed with marching bands and at the same time wanted to work on audience participation, so I made a list of things that the audience could do. Marching bands? Yeah. Why did you become obsessed with marching bands? There's so many people playing. (laughs) Um, For me, they're a symbol of a communal experience in American culture where I thought that a lot of people have some kind of relationship to maybe they played in school and in my utopian idea, everybody would bring out their dusty alto saxophone and bring it to a concert and uh, be able to play along. Yeah. I'm not so sure that's worked out for me <laughs> yet. But. You, you would not be quite so keen on the whole idea of marching band had you spent the time in Scotland yeah. that I've spent because it's pipe bands. When you oh. see those pipe bands marching and they put the fear of God... That's not about free expression. That is about terrifying their enemies. (laughs) These people are coming towards you. They have things. They are making wailing, skirling noises. And all you want to do is just flee. (laughs) Is that that, that what they're designed to do? The bagpipes? Yes, you're you're not not meant to go, ah, I will stay here and listen to the bagpipe music. (laughs) You are meant to go... To go running away They have come to take my sheep and my women. (laughs) I am running away. Why do you call yourself My Brightest Diamond when you perform and not just, hey, it's me, Cheryl Warden? I like to do a lot of different things. And for me, coming up with um, structures and names for things helps me focus. So this is the project of your focus in this particular strain is My Brightest Diamond. Exactly. It's my pop songs. Okay. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of uh, My Brightest Diamond music to hear, and and thanks for bringing some of it to us this week on Wits. Cheryl Warden, everybody. (laughs) Coming up, Cats versus Jazz in a Fight to the Death, and the best comic books to never exist. This is Wits. I'm John Moe. Wits is part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. You might want to check out one of our sibling podcasts, Life of the Law. It's in-depth reporting about how the law is alive in our everyday, day-to-day lives. You might know, for instance, that if someone is threatening you, you can file a restraining order. But what can you do when you're harassed on the internet? What does the law have to say about that? Check out a recent episode of Life of the Law all about doxing. Search for Life of the Law on your favorite podcast app or find it at infiniteguest.org.
This is Wits. I'm John Moe, here with music guest My Brightest Diamond and author Neil Gaiman. Honey, what are you doing up? It's 3 a.m. I need to use the restroom. If you leave this room, you will be killed. He hunts by night. Donna, my life will not be dictated by a cat. We don't have a cat. We have murder cat. All cats want to murder people. That's a fact, says science. But only one cat up and does it. That's a murder cat. He'll hunt you, Danny. To him, you're nothing more than a giant stupid canary. I never even wanted a cat. I hate cats. We had mice. We still have mice. That's because he craves the ultimate prey, which is man. The bathroom should be okay. Cats hate water. wearing scuba gear and hiding in the toilet. Oh my God. He etched a message in your cheek with his claw. I let you live. (laughs) What's that? It's coming from the closet. Scut, scut, diddly dup. Don't be afraid. Angel bunnies, scoot boot diddly noot. My name is Beige Dove Pepper. I come in peace. Here, let me play my peace trumpet at you. Wow, that was really nice. Hey, what are you doing in our closet? Why are you named Beige? I'm bleeding very badly. My name is a reflection of my personality, Sugar Turtle. I'm as calm as a jazz trumpet solo. You need my help not to be murdered. I crept in while Murder Cat wasn't looking. I hid among your clothes to mask my scent, as is the jazz trumpeter's way. (laughs) See, I was Murder Cat's first owner. Have time for an origin story, Cinnamon Tigers? Uh, I do need to get to the hospital at some point. I was on a hike. Looking for inspiration. In the distance, a volcano erupted, and I saw a kitten soar through the sky and land nearby. I ran to him. There was a letter attached to his tiny paw. It read, too much to handle. (laughs) Signed, the devil. I knew jazz 
was more powerful than evil. I don't think that's true. Oh, that cat, murder cat, loved the sound of my trumpet. It curbed his urge to murder. It was a murder urge curber. We had a great year together, diddly boop. But sadly, I had to let him go. Why? I landed a two-year concert tour with Kenny G. <laughs> Cats aren't allowed near Kenny's hair. Uh. Tour is over now, and I'm dedicated to saving people from this cat. He's in the toilet. I think I'm pretty injured. I keep seeing this light. I want to go to it. Murder Cat has lost the fear of water. His power has grown. I'm going to have to light jazz him hard. I'll be back. It's working. Murder Cat seems calmer. He's purring. Murder Cat is crawling into Beige's lap while he riffs on a wicked horn solo. Maybe everything is okay. No, no, wait a minute. No, Murder Cat is putting on earmuffs. He's blocking out the sounds. Beige! Tell my story. Skip. This part. <laughs> Kibbly wibbly doo. <laughs> he died like he lived. Probably. I mean, we barely knew him. All cats want to murder people. That's a fact, says science. But only one cat up and does it. That's murder cat. Mike Fotis as Danny, Cheryl Warden as Donna, Neil Gaiman as Beige, me as murder cat. Support for Wits comes from Radio Shack, teaming with Sunglass Hut and Pizza Hut to form the all-new hovel-based retail alliance. <laughs> And from exclamation points in emails, which should always be read as shouting. I had fun at the party! Wanna grab lunch later? Bye! <laughs> and now, the Wits Game Show, the game Obscure Comic Books of the World. I will offer up the title of an incredibly obscure comic book, something that no one here, even Neil Gaiman, has ever heard of. Neil Gaiman will tell us about this comic book, and then it will be up to My Brightest Diamond to sing us the theme song for the hero in the film version of the comic book. I will judge them. <laughs> Arbitrarily and capriciously. Neil Gaiman, comic book one, from Canada in the 1950s, Tell us about Super Grocery Force. Oh, no, Super Grocery Force were fantastic. Um, it, it predated X-Men, it predated the Doom Patrol. They were out there in their grocery, 
patrolling it. Obviously, superheroes in the store. They were superheroes in the store because, you know, terrible, terrible things can happen, uh, particularly in aisle 10. As we all remember, where, you know, condiments were splashed, um, there was that horrible episode where there was shampoo all over the place, and it was just, just heartrending. So the call would come out spillage in aisle 10, and super grocery force would be down there. They'd have mops. They'd How are they different than just regular grocery store employees? Or are they? They had costumes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cheryl Warden, I know they've, they've, you've been hired to sing the, uh, the theme song for the upcoming Super Grocery Force motion picture, and congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, uh, particularly Mop Man. I think Mop Man and, and you know, Mop Man Spillage was Girl. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you give us a little, uh, a little sampling of the song that you've written for that film? Mop man, spillage girl, aisle two, we got something for you. Mop man, spillage girl, we got something for you to do. Ordinarily, we set these things up as competitions between the two of you, but... I think we, we, we're more of a punk. I know. I think I'm just going to give you both a point straight up. <laughs> Neil, uh, as a comics expert, please tell me about the Australian comic Koala Platy Roo, The New Adventures. You know, a lot of people think that Koala Platy Roo, The New Adventures is uh, a, a huge step down from the original Golden Age Koala Platy Roo uh, comics. Back in where, the 40s, right? Yeah. yeah. Where little Jimmy Digger um, found the meteorite that gave him the powers of a koala, a platypus, and a kangaroo. Um, and, and whereas I think when it came back as a cartoon you know, for kids, it was much more sort of kid-friendly. Mm. Um, they lost his, you know, urge to mate with everything that he'd had in the, <laughs> the Golden Age comics and replaced it with um, an urge to, to save the Earth. Yeah. Um, which I just think, you know, they were sort of much more based around ecology. I never understood what powers a koala had in the first place. They fall out of trees. Oh. <laughs> Which is great if you have a villain underneath you. You just fall out of the tree, dead. <laughs> takes very Obviously, precise time. nobody was, that was dead in the original Golden Age where they were vicious and nasty. When they came back, because Koala Platy Roo, the new adventures, he'd fall out of the tree and everybody would laugh and they'd all hug. Oh, it, was, okay. it was fun, it was upbeat. Well, uh, Cheryl Warden, I know that you've uh, been picking up some work as uh, doing the music for the new adventures. For the, I guess it was a comic and then got turned into a, a cartoon. Is that right, Neil? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the cartoon was great. It's very Australian. Lovely bush noises and uh, sure. uh, upbeats, a little Super Friends kind of song. Well, that should be a lot of fun to hear Cheryl do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Koala, platyroo, 
I guess I wasn't raised on the original series, so that just seems very charming to me. I, I, I don't miss the edge, really. <laughs> um, this is a, a comic, I don't really know anything about this one, Neil, from Luxembourg. Uh, it's a comic called Why is Luxembourg? You, you obviously are not familiar with a lot of the deep philosophical comics that have been coming out of Luxembourg. No. Um, it's, it's, I had no idea. So Why is Luxembourg is a 10-volume uh, graphic novel. Um, each volume consisting of a thousand pages in which um, Schwarzbühl um, that down. explains the reason behind Luxembourg. Um, I haven't actually finished it yet. Yeah, I um, wouldn't think... Are, so but I'm sure that something exciting is, is going to happen. There, uh, it, it's come across so far as, I have to say, it's a little bit dry. Mm. Um, apparently, Luxembourg exists because we exist. And our perception of Luxembourg shapes Luxembourg. Uh, okay. Particularly on the east. It's a, it's a Heisenberg Luxembourg. Yes, it is. Okay. It's, it's the Luxembourg uncertainty principle. West. Vol ten volume set. Well, Cheryl Warden. <laughs> I'm Luxembourg. You want to hear me say my word. I'm Luxembourg. Luxembourg. I know why I exist. I don't have to ask why. I know, I know, I know, I know. Cause I'm Luxembourg. And that is the Wits Game Show. Congratulations, Neil Gaiman and my brightest diamond. More with Neil Gaiman and musical guest My Brightest Diamond in just a moment. This is Wits. I'm John Moe. Want to see Wits live? Oh, we have a lot of chances coming up for you to see us make this show live and in person. All sorts of great guests joining us this spring. George Takei from Star Trek, Danny Pudi from Community, Marilyn Rice Cub from 24 and Mr. Show, Eric Stone Street from Modern Family, Carrie Elwes from The Princess Bride, the Dread Pirate Roberts himself, plus amazing musical guests like Brandy Carlisle, Nico Case, Ryan Bingham, Kat Edmondson, Serengeti, and Harmar Superstar. For our fans in Nashville, Tennessee, we're going to be at the Wild West Comedy Festival on April 17th. And our good friends in Texas will get to see us live in Austin on May 21st. Information and tickets to all of our upcoming shows at witsradio.org.
This is Wits. I'm John Moe, here with author Neil Gaiman and musical guest My Brightest Diamond. This is a song I wrote for my son, Constantine. I have never loved someone the way I love you. I have never seen a smile like yours. And if you grow up to be king or clown or pauper, I will say you are my favorite one in town. I have never held a hand so soft and sacred When I hear your laugh I know heaven's key And when I grow to be a poppy in the graveyard I will send you all my love Let's, uh, let's leave off talking about Neil Gaiman's writing and let's hear a bit about Neil Gaiman's writing. Go ahead, Neil. I love that this story is actually going to get onto the radio because it was commissioned by Ira Glass for This American Life and I gave it to him and he called back and he said he really liked it but his producers didn't and could I do something else instead? <laughs> So, 
for its first outing. It's called Adventure Story. In my family, adventure tends to be used to mean any minor disaster we survived, or even any break from routine, except by my mother, who still uses it to mean what she did that morning. <laughs> Going to the wrong part of a supermarket parking lot, and while looking for her car, getting into a conversation with someone whose sister, it turns out she knew in the 1970s, would qualify for my mother as a full-blown adventure. She's getting older now. She no longer gets out of the house as she used to, not since my father died. My last visit to her, we were clearing out some of his possessions. She gave me a black leather lens case filled with tarnished cufflinks and invited me to take any of my father's old sweaters and cardigans I wanted to remember him by. I loved my father, but couldn't imagine wearing one of his sweaters. He was much bigger than me all my life. Nothing of his would fit me. And then I said, what's that? Oh, said my mother, that's something that your father brought back from Germany when he was in the army. It was carved out of mottled red stone, the size of my thumb. It was a person, a hero, or perhaps a god, with a pained expression on its rough carved face. It doesn't look very German, I said. It wasn't, dear. I think it's from... Well, these days, it's Kazakhstan. I'm not sure what it was back then. What was Dad doing in Kazakhstan in the army? This would have been about 1950. My father ran the officers' club in Germany during his national service, and in none of his post-war army after-dinner stories had ever done anything more than borrow a truck without permission or take delivery of some dodgily sourced whiskey. Oh, she looked as if she'd said too much. Then she said, nothing, dear. He didn't like to talk about it. I put the statue with the cufflinks and the small pile of curling black and white photos I had decided to take home with me to scan. I slept in the spare bedroom at the end of the hall, in the narrow spare bed. The next morning, I went into the room that had been my father's office to look at it one final time. Then I walked across the hall into the living room where my mother had already laid breakfast. What happened to that little stone carving? I put it away, dear. My mother's lips were set. Why? Well, your father always said he shouldn't have held on to it in the first place. Why not? She poured tea from the same china teapot she'd poured it from all my life. Because... There were people after it. In the end, their ship blew up. In the valley. Because of those flappy things getting into their propellers. Flappy things? She thought for a moment. Pterodactyls, dear. <laughs> With a P. That was what your father said they were. Of course, he said the people in the airship deserved all that was coming to them after what they did to the Aztecs in 1942. <laughs> Mummy, the Aztecs died out years ago, long before 1942. Oh, yes, dear, the ones in America. Not in that valley. 
These other people, the ones in the airship, well, your father said they weren't really people, but they looked like people, even though they came from somewhere with, oh, such a funny name, where was it? She thought for a while. Then she said, you should drink your tea, dear. <laughs> yes, no, hang on. So what were these people? And pterodactyls have been extinct for 50 million years. If you say so, dear. Your father never really talked about it. She paused. Then, there was a girl. This was at least five years before your father and I started going out. He was very good looking back then. Well, I always thought he was handsome. He met her in Germany. She was hiding from people who were looking for that statue. She was their queen or, or princess or, or wise woman or something. They kidnapped her and he was with her so they kidnapped him too they weren't actually aliens they were more like oh those people who turn into wolves on the television <laughs> werewolves i suppose so dear she seemed doubtful the statue was an oracle and if you owned it even if you had it you were the ruler of those people she stirred her tea what did your father say? The entrance to the valley was through a tiny footpath, and after the German girl, well, she wasn't German, obviously, but they blew up the pathway with a, a ray machine to cut off the way to the outside world, so your father had to make his own way home. He would have got into such a lot of trouble, but the man who escaped with him, Barry Anscombe, he was in military intelligence, and... Hang on. Barry Anscombe? used to come and stay for the weekend when I was a kid. Gave me 50 pence every time. Did bad coin tricks. Snored. Silly moustache. Yes, dear, Barry. He went to South America when he retired. Ecuador, I think. Anyway, that was how they met when your father was in the army. My father had told me once that my mother had never liked Barry Anscombe, that he was my dad's friend. And... She poured me another cup of tea. It was such a long time ago, dear. Your father told me all about it once, but he didn't tell the story immediately. He only told me when we were married. He said I ought to know. We were on our honeymoon. We went to a little Spanish fishing village. These days it's a big tourist town, but back then nobody had ever heard of it. What was it called? Oh yes, Torremolinos. Can I see it again? The statue? No, dear. You put it away. I threw it away, said my mother coldly, then as if to stop me from rummaging in the rubbish. The bin men already came this morning. We said nothing then. She sipped her tea. You'll never guess who I met last week. Your old school teacher, Mrs. Brooks. We met in Safeways. She and I went off to have coffee in the bookshop because I was hoping to talk to her about joining the town carnival committee. But it was closed. We had to go to the old tea shoppy instead. It was quite an adventure. <laughs> Neil Gaiman, ladies and gentlemen. And now, the Wits Lightning Round. Neil Gaiman, what was the first record you ever bought? Uh, Downtown by Petula Clark. Shara Warden, what is a book that changed your life? Um, the Elegance of the Hedgehog. Neil, who would you like to have play you in a movie biography? 
I think Dylan Moran, because he's got the hair. Shara, is music difficult? Yes. Shara, who was your hero as a child? Prince. Neil, what's your favorite thing about the state of Wisconsin where you have spent a lot of time? Uh, my favorite thing is nobody believes it. <laughs> I say... You know, you say, oh yeah, I, no, I live in Wisconsin. They say, no, really, Don't. where do you live? <laughs> there are no old crumbling castles in Wisconsin. <laughs> Neil, what scares you? Uh, just the, you know, the usual bad things happening to my kids, bad things happening to my wife, my eyeballs turning to giant liquid balls and dripping down my cheeks. <laughs> the same as everybody else. Shara, what makes you laugh? Um, spontaneity. Neil, what inspires you? Uh, desperation. <laughs> Shara, what album should be given to all children so that they grow up right? Benjamin Britten, Ceremony of Carols. Neil, what book should be given to all children so that they grow up right? Uh, where the Wild Things Are. Neil, how many... <laughs> Neil, how many shirts, jackets, or pants do you own that are not black? I plead the fifth. <laughs> Shara, what is your favorite sound? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. That sound you just made was pretty good. <laughs> I liked it. Neil, what is your least favorite sound? Uh, fingernails and blackboards, and it's when somebody's like severed a whole lot of fingernails and they're dragging them <laughs> down. You always have to take it one step further, don't you? <laughs> Shara, if you had to own a store at a shopping mall, what would that store sell? Um, it would sell um, um, skull rings and um, bad uh, charm necklaces. Neil, favorite member of One Direction? <laughs> How can one choose? Shara, favorite member of Black Sabbath? <laughs> um, I don't know any of their names, but whoever plays the loudest. Okay, good. Shara, what's the biggest zoo animal you could beat in a fight if it came right down to it? Tiger, easy. Neil, what's the biggest zoo animal you could beat in a fight if it came right down to it? Chinchilla. And that's the Wits Lightning Round. Here with more music, My Brightest Diamond. All unbuttoned and undressed 
Brightest Diamond, along with John Munson and the Witnesses. 
Want more Wits in your life? Go to witsradio.org and find out how you can see a Wits show in person. You can sign up for our newsletter, get the latest about what our various Wits guests are up to, or tell us what you're up to on Twitter. Just tag us. We're at Wits. Thanks this week to author Neil Gaiman and musical guest My Brightest Diamond. Thanks also to technical director Corey Schrebel and our intern Carlos Espinoza, as well as Julia Schrenkler and the staff at the Fitzgerald Theater, Tom Campbell, Aaron Cassio, Mike Wangan, Dan Zimmerman, and C. Andrew Mayer. Wits is written by me and Wendy Molyneux and Jeff Drake and Mike Fotis. We're joined this week by our music director, John Munson, and the witnesses, Janie Winterbauer, Steve Rome, Noah Levy, and Stephen Kung. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Our senior producers are Hans Buto and Larissa Anderson. I'm John Moe. Bye now.